O Lord, our God, righteousness. We praise you this Christmas morn and we thank you for the gift of your Son. And we ask that you would now enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might behold wonderful truths from your word. I ask, Lord, as your appointed pastor for this church, that I would preach a message which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your covenant people. In Christ's precious name, amen. One of the interesting things we find when we read the scriptures is this idea of publishing. On very rare occasions, does God tell his people to keep quiet? We're told to publish the good news. But if you notice something that's interesting about that Christmas reading from Luke 2, that sounds like a, a, a loud, raucous affair. And it must have been. Try and put yourself in the position of those shepherds. I don't know what shepherds are like. I've never actually met a sheep herder, but... I'm guessing that it's not an incredibly exciting existence. Sometimes, probably the most exciting thing that would happen, for lack of a better term, is if a wolf descends upon the sheep. It's not fun, but certainly your adrenaline will get going. Now, these gents are out in the middle of a field at night. It's just another night, like any other night. And they weren't expecting anything. And all of a sudden... Well, they get a show. They get a show. And what's very significant about that is that shepherds, generally speaking, particularly in the ancient world, it's not a Wall Street level profession. It's fairly low on the totem pole. If a shepherd were to go into the local synagogue, he wouldn't be ushered up into the front seats, as was the case in first century Judaism, which had a real propensity to cater to the rich. That's what we've been discussing a little bit in the book of James. And that's an issue today as well. If somebody has money, we would like them to attend our church. That's any church, because, well, we never know. Maybe they'll bequeath us a nice gift. But shepherds are humble. Shepherds usually aren't rich. And that is who Christ is first announced to. He's not announced to the kings of the world. He's announced to these humble men in a humble profession at night. They receive the first revelation that the Christ has been born. And that is extremely significant. We have to remember that we believe that this is God's inspired word. There's nothing in here that does not belong here. There's nothing in here that is not necessary. So it's necessary that we know that shepherds heard the message first. And the basic message we can glean from that is that God does things very differently than we do. I often tell people I'm not God. If I was, I have news for you. I would do things very differently. But again, I'm not God. And what he does is perfect. What he does is right. He announced it to the humble of the earth. The king of the universes 
incarnation is announced to the most humble men of the most humble profession. And nobody else knew about it. And when they hear the good news, what does the text tell us? Basically, in our vernacular, they can't keep their mouths shut. They spread the news wildly. They were given no command not to, not to speak it. Now, imagine you were one of those shepherds. Would you, would you be able to not speak about that? Now, let me ask you something. The good things that God has done for you may not be as physically spectacular as this because the announcement of Christ's birth can only happen once. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It can't be repeatable. It can't reset the clock. But God has done great things for each of you. Have you told anybody about them? You see, very often we get this idea that in order to spread the good news, we have to know our Bibles back and forth. Now, I'll get to that in just a minute. Because every single one of us, including myself, can know this book better. But the essence of speaking to persons about Christ is basically telling them what he's done for you. Do you have a blessing in your life? Yes, you do. You may not think that you do. This causes for a new set of lenses, so to speak, to see our lives. The simple things that we think are just ordinary, everyday occasions, in reality, are utter miracles. You woke up today. You're celebrating in a safe warm, beautiful, historic building. Each of us, in turn, will go home today or to someone else's home and have some nice meal. And those meals do taste better when someone else cooks them, isn't it true? When someone else does the work. We have these blessings. And a lot of people don't. And I don't say that to make us feel guilty because we're not, we're not supposed to feel guilty. If God gives us a blessing, we are not commanded to feel guilty. And that's a crazy notion anyway. Guilt is something. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a legal status before a court, is it not? You're found guilty in a court of law. You can't feel it. You might feel bad because you've been caught. You might feel bad because the judge has passed sentence to you. But guilt is a, is a legal sentence. If God has given you something, you are to be grateful and joyous for it, but always remember that it's a gift. And the way to spread the good news is to speak humbly about the gift. You see, sometimes when Christians talk about their relationship with Christ, they come across, A, as theological professors, and B, people who just want to burn people at the stake. Be honest with you. I just had a member of my family tell me that last night. Well, not in those words, but... 
please don't give me the message again. Let me have one night of peace. I said, look, it's Christmas. You just told me Merry Christmas. Do you realize what you just said to me? You just used his name. You can't escape his name. Try and do it. Christmas. I said, you just said it. You didn't say holiday. And if you did, that means holy day. And you don't believe in holy day. So you can't get away from it. Just tell people what God's done for you. The simple things. Because the simple things are what make a life. That's what adds up. That's what adds up. And when we look at this passage in Isaiah, we see this description of Christ. But we also see, and this is where it gets unique, because we believe in one God in a trinity of persons. No person who has ever lived on this planet understands that. And it's a stumbling block to other people of other religions. We can't understand it. It is an article of faith. We believe it because God said it. We can think about it. We can try and figure it out. But listen to me. People have been trying to figure out the mystery of the Trinity for 2,000 years. And I assure you, I assure you, no one has said definitively, Aha, I have got it. Do you know why? Because God hasn't revealed it in its fullness to us. We are to believe it. We can think about it. But what this language we see of Yahweh in Isaiah 42 is that he's a God of action. He's a God who enters into history. And that is what the incarnation is all about. You see, the God of the ancient world, the God of the Greeks and the Romans, the God, the God, for lack of a better term, of the ancient philosophers, was very remote. He was up in the sky somewhere, and he couldn't be touched. He was apathetic, literally. Now, we use the word apathetic to say, oh, he's, he's apathetic about algebra. Well, personally, I'm going to cut you some slack on that one, okay? Now, if you're taking algebra in class, you better not be apathetic about it. But what the word means literally is without feeling. Ah, without pathos, without passion. The God of the Greeks and the Romans was, by and large, a God without passion, without feeling, who was remote. The God of the Bible is not a God who is passionless. The God of the Bible is described as a God of fierce wrath. And he's also described as a God who takes great joy in his people. And that's the relationship we have. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And Yahweh says that we are his joy. That we are the apple of his eye. When you say that to someone, you're the apple of my eye. That's a compliment. And... If you're honest, you really only say that to one person. Maybe a couple. If you have a wife, you can say it to your wife or your husband. If you have children, you can say it to your children. But it's not something you just say to everybody. The apple of my eye denotes a special relationship. And that special relationship between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His people is found and manifested 
in that baby in the manger. The mystery of the incarnation. God become man. But the two remain separate. He's fully human, fully God, and the two remain separate. Again, that's something that's not explained to us. It's an article of faith. And the description we have of the Godhead here is a God who is a God of action, but the description that we have of the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation is one of quiet humility. Let me just read a few passages from here. For one thing, he's called my servant, the elect in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. We read this and we think, okay, that's nice. It's about about Jesus. We're Gentiles. We're from Northern Europe. It must be about us. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Christ was born. When, when I'm, I can't get into Isaiah's mind, but when he heard this revelation, bells went off in his head. The Gentiles are part of your plan? Hmm? When this was read in the synagogues the first time, this is a radical message. You're going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles? You have to remember, Isaiah... Preach. That's what a prophet primarily did. His ministry was during times of turbulence, immediately prior to the Babylonians coming in and wrecking Jerusalem. Not immediately prior to, but leading up to it. A lot of crazy political things were happening in the ancient Near East when Isaiah got this prophecy. So when people heard this, most likely they thought, uh, forget about the Gentiles. The Assyrians are around us. And, oh, the Assyrians are starting to fall apart. Oh, and look who's taking their place, the Babylonians. They're ten times as worse. Thank you very much. We don't want to hear about justice for the Gentiles. And this shows that God's plan, this shows that God's plan has always included us. And the New Testament tells us that if you're a Christian, you are predestined to salvation in Christ, listen, before the foundation of the world. No matter how horrible a sinner you were, let's take a person that, let's say, I'm going to pick an age arbitrarily. 26, that's an unusual number. It's not even. Well, actually, it is even. 26. person gets saved at 26 out of a life of horrible crime. Okay? We'll make him a man. He's a mean, mean guy. Been in prison, just never, never said a nice thing to anybody. He hears the message, he gets saved. The reality of that we see in history is a miracle, a changed life. Okay? But in the mind of God, that man had been predestined from the foundations of of the earth, before the foundations of the earth. You see, God's ways aren't our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He always had a plan for those who were outside. And we hear this language of coastlands. When we think of coastlands, we think, oh, beach vacation. I'm going to the coast. I'm going to the west coast. I'm going to the east coast. You know, New York and California. You know, 
even though the East Coast can include North and South Carolina too. All this means is that God is concerned with a lot more than a little skinny, parched piece of real estate in what we call the Mideast. He's concerned with the whole kit and caboodle. The coastlands are part of his plan. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Not an old one. A new song. Why? Because the Messiah has come. Change in venue. A change in administration. And his praise, where? From the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Everywhere. Now what we have to understand is that, as I said the last two weeks in the first two parts of this message, the babe in the manger, let me just repeat it for some of you who weren't here, the babe in the manger was a declaration of war. Because the Christ child came on a mission. To save his people. He was dropped behind enemy lines to die for you and to save his people. The babe in the manger was an act of love. Because when someone dies in war, they can die in war for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that you hear, one of the phrases you hear is, he, or unfortunately now she, died for love of country. You hear that, right? That's something. He died for love of country. The babe in the manger died for the love he had for his people. Which means you. And that's everybody's favorite verse. You see it in uh, football games all the time. John 3.16 when someone's, I don't know if they do that too much anymore. Banner man, right? Remember in the 80s, people started John 3.16, when, when you're going to kick a field goal, you'd see John 3.16. And every now and again, someone would put up an obscure verse and people would have to go look it up. I always found that, I've always thought that was cute. But God so what? Loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that who should ever believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world. But in this passage, how does God describe himself? The Lord shall go forth, I'm in Isaiah, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud, he shall prevail against his enemies. How did he do that? The church, particularly in the Middle Ages, got this message wrong. And they reasoned this way. They said, well, if the Lord is a man of war and the church is his people, then... That's how we have to do it. So they went forth, and basically the message was this. And this is a, a, an oversimplification, but convert or die. It hmm? sounds like another religion that's spreading wildly today through violence. Convert or die. So what happened is millions of people came into the church just because they were afraid they were going to die. But it didn't penetrate their hearts. And that corrupted the church from within. The way God wages war in history now is through the message of love. And listen, in our day and age, that is a radical message. Because we do not live 
in a world that's filled with love and joy. Think of what's happened just to this season. Did any of you have to do last minute shopping? Did any of you have to go into uh, an area where you might not normally like to drive because that's where the store was? It's fun, isn't it? Cruising around looking for a parking space to buy something that you hope somebody might enjoy. People are honking. People are zipping in. A lot of us have SUVs and trucks. We don't move as fast as little Mazdas. Little Mazda can sneak into the space a lot faster than you can. And that's annoying, especially when it happens three times in a row. Hey, that was my spot. You got in there faster. And you get angry. And you walk around. And as a pastor, I'm fine-tuned to, to look at people. And all I saw whenever I went into a store today, not today, but during the past week or two, I didn't see much joy. I saw tension. I saw anger. Especially if you're 7th or 8th online and the person behind the counter is moving so slowly because he or she doesn't want to be there and they seem like they're going to intentionally make you wait just to make you as miserable as they are. But you don't know that because you don't have the foggiest idea what that person's been through. That person could have gotten a call in their lunch hour and their whole life could have been turned upside down. The person three seats in back of you online could have received a call two days ago that totally wrecked their life. And that's why they're in that mood. And the message of this season is that God has come into the world to do away with that. To do away with the joylessness. To do away with the tension. It will never be perfect in this world. But we as Christians have the gift of the Spirit and it should be in our lives. It should be seen in our faces. And the reason why it's not is because we, we don't have the right set of glasses on. Jesus is such a bright light that you need sunglasses to see him. Think about the reading that we had of Moses months ago. Moses said, and this is a paraphrase, I'd like to see your face. God basically laughs and says, you want to see my face? No, you can't handle that. Go hide behind that rock, duck down real low, I'll pass by, and you'll get just a glimpse. Again, paraphrase, you'll just get a glimpse of part of me. Because if you see me, you're done. God is this pure light. So when people say, I saw God last night, you say, well, are you blinded by that light? Are your eyes pierced, literally? Jesus is the light of the world. And when he comes into our hearts, that light has got to burn inside us. But listen, we have to fan that flame. We have to fan that flame. Now, in this morning's liturgy, in the Psalter, I thought on my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. This is important. 
This is how you can fan the flame of the joy of the Lord into you. To think on your ways. But hey, listen, if you just think on your ways, you will be driven to despair. If you just look inwards, you will be driven to despair because you will see a mixed bag of nuts there. You will see some good and you will see a lot of darkness. And if you think about your ways long enough, you will realize, good night. Am I really capable of that? Good night. Did I really say that to him? Did I say that to her? Oh, dear. But you see, when, then when you turn outward to God's testimonies, you will read the message of forgiveness. And then the joy will return when you realize, oh, the grace of God is upon me. Yes, I did say that. Yes, I did do that. Oh, good night. I'm capable of ten times worse. But God has saved me through that little baby in the manger. You look inward, but then you look outward. And in part of David's confession. Lo and evil I was born, in sin I was conceived. People often ask me about the virgin birth and they say, what on earth is that about? How could you believe in that? And I said, it's, it's a necessary part of the equation. The guilt of original sin is handed down as a verdict through the Father. If you're a father, don't, don't take this too heavily, but if you're a father, the original sin is handed down to your children through you, not through your wife. Not physically, it's judicially. In Adam all men die, not in Adam and Eve. I've repeated that to you a trillion times because the church has blamed Eve for a long time. Joseph had to be taken out of the equation not because of some filth in him, but so that Christ could be born without the verdict of original sin upon him. He comes into the world a pure, spotless baby. But then he fought as a man of war for 30 years. And when you read the Gospels, the only time he ever, ever really lets loose on people is when they are trotting down upon those who don't have as much as they do. He always sticks up for himself and he always sticks up for his people. The only time he allowed himself to be a doormat was what we call Passion Week and he did that for you. The text tells us in Isaiah, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, etc., etc., until when? Until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. That's the message of Christmas. People say, why don't we know anything about Jesus when he was a teenager? The easy answer is, we don't need to know. That wasn't the time when his ministry began. Christ came as a priest. Priests in ancient Israel don't start their ministries at age 15. They started their ministry at the age of around 30. Surprise, surprise, surprise. 
Jesus began his public ministry, the scriptures tell us, about the age of 30. The system all fits in place. Yes, the babe in the manger is a declaration of war. And the way that war was fought was through love. It was through love. And that's the way we are to fight. By loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And don't forget the second part. To love our neighbor as ourselves. If we strive for those two things, then Christmas will be spread all year round. Lord, those two greatest commandments are a lifelong achievement for us. Please grant us the grace to do forth by your grace. In Jesus' precious name, amen.